Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Hairball Audio. For nearly a decade, Hairball Audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high-quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form. Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio. Do it yourself without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sure Legendary Microphones, Cutting Edge Wireless Systems, Premium Earphones and Headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to Sure.com. And now your host, AL Levy. Welcome to the URM podcast. I am AL Levy. And I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Welcome to the podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and today I have a great guest. I have Mr. Jack Shirley, who is a now Grammy-nominated producer for his work with the band Deaf Heaven, the most recent one is up for a Grammy, which is pretty damn cool. He's a great guest. He's out of Oakland at a studio called Atomic Garden Studios, and you should check out that site because the place looks amazing. And this is one of those episodes where we definitely spend a long time talking about how important source, tone, and vibe is how much more important it is than so many other things that people get distracted with. But we also talk about the sacrifice involved in making this your career. The sacrifice as well as what goes into making this your career long term. And it's so interesting that even though he comes from a different world than I do, he comes more from the punk DIY world and I come from the metal world, we have the exact same opinions on what it takes to actually build a career. He's got a ton of wisdom, super smart guy, and really, really friendly. I really, really enjoyed making this episode, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here goes. Jack Shirley, welcome to the URM podcast. I'm glad we're finally getting to do this. And just so you know, I first became aware of you when Kurt Ballou told me uh, to check your stuff out and to get in touch with you a while ago. Oh, awesome. And he spoke very, very highly of you. Well, that's very kind. What a sweetie. Yeah, he's a sweetie at times. <laughs> well, hold on. Let me make sure that people know that I've never known him to not be a sweetie at sure. times. He spoke very, very highly of you, told me to get in touch with you. And then also, and congratulations on this, I saw the Grammy nomination. Yeah, thank you. And was like, that's the dude that Kurt was talking about. I'm going to get in touch. Sometimes it takes me a little while to get in touch after Kurt or anybody suggests somebody. Sure. You, just because there's so much going on, it takes me hearing about them. But then I started doing my research on you, and 
listening to your work and also wondering why would Kurt suggest somebody because he's got such a such a uh, defined sense of what he deems good mm-hmm. and not good. And so someone that he would suggest, there's got to be something interesting there. So I started listening to your records and I love your style. Thank you. I love that you have that raw but polished, modern and huge, yet real thing going, which is actually, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to pull off. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. They don't always go together, you know? Sure. Modern and huge tend to be easier to get if everything's polished. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's my favorite style of production, and I'm always impressed when I hear people doing it well. So thank you for being here. Thank you I'm for having me. kissing your ass. <laughs> let's, let's talk. So you're in the Bay Area? I am. I'm in uh, Oakland. Okay. And what got you into this in the first place? Why did you start recording? Kind of out of necessity, I guess. I was a musician, and... Um, I grew up in the peninsula, which is like halfway between San Francisco and San Jose on the west side of the of the San Francisco Bay. And at the time, which was around like 2003, there were a handful of bands in the area and in a, a pretty thriving scene for like a kind of suburban area. And there weren't really any DIY kind of low budget options that, that were at least apparent to the bulk of us, you know, and I'd had some kind of like less than stellar experiences with the engineer musician interaction, you know? And so, um, yeah, in my head, I was, I kind of knew like, well, I know what I want it to sound like. I just don't know how to do it. And I had gotten a Pro Tools set up and an inbox and, uh, you know, and that was kind of it. That was the beginning of the end. I started kind of chipping away, uh, trial and error style. And, um, here we are. You know, it's interesting that you say that. This is kind of the story of lots of producers I know who mm-hmm. came about from the same time period, like the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, when they started, they they all seem, at least in slightly heavier music, they seem to have a, uh, a similar story of, I went to other studios, mm-hmm. but they just didn't understand my style of music and it always just sounded like shit. So I learned to do it myself. Well, not even that. Like, beyond it, maybe not sounding right or the the uh, engineer not understanding, uh, the engineer oftentimes would then try to tell you, like, oh, no, no, you like can't do that. You, you, you're you going to want to do it like this. You know, I don't know. Punk rock music is, like, kind of based on not doing it, like, the traditional way or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whether it's song structures or just, like, your general approach to you know, whatever. So my biggest obstacle was not like, oh, this sounds bad. It was more like, I need to get this person out of my way so that I can just do what I want and like not have to worry about explaining it to somebody, you know? Yeah, that that makes total sense. I, I come from the metal world, which is different than punk, but similar in that the stuff that works for recording metal doesn't work for any other genre. Totally. And, you know, it's kind of like you have all the traditional genres that, you know, get taught in recording schools that a standard engineer will know how to do at least moderately well. Yeah. But then you have these other styles like punk and metal that just live by their own rules or no rules or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever you want to call it. And the reason I said it sounds like garbage is because your typical engineer at a you know, one size fits all studio, at least in those days, did not know how to do any 
sort of metal. And so I also felt like they wouldn't take our suggestions for mm-hmm. how to do it. Uh, so it was kind of, kind of a similar sort of thing, kind of just like at an impasse. Well, and the production for, the, for certain styles of like hardcore and stuff like that hadn't really like completely landed yet. I was just talking to a friend about this the other day, and speaking of Kurt, it was like he referred to it as like the post-Jane Doe, you know, world. Mm-hmm. But like that was one of the first records where it's like, oh yeah, it doesn't have to sound like everything's coming through like a metal zone pedal or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's true, right? A lot of production before that was pretty embarrassing, looking back on it, and very like dated. But but it also meant that you couldn't, even if you wanted something different, you didn't have anything to point to to be like, here, this is what we want our record to sound like, or whatever. You know, like there was no concrete reference material like there is now. Now there's you know uh, hundreds of of great sounding like heavy records that you could show an engineer and be like even if they didn't understand it if they were good at their job you could be like this is what we want you know roughly it'd make a little more sense but but yeah i know what you mean it's like some some people even still like i hear stories about people who who went elsewhere and were like oh man they just didn't know what to do with like our drummer they, they didn't get that he like why he was hitting cymbals so hard and so often you know or whatever so yeah it's it is definitely um you got it you got to kind of just like know what to expect and how to work around it i guess yeah, I think uh, I see a similar... I'm going to bring up black metal just because sure. uh, of your link to Def Heaven, which are uh, you know their own breed of black metal, but still they come from that world in their own way. Yeah. Um, that It's a similar thing in that genre that there is a time period where the productions <laughs> sounded <laughs> kind of similar, like uh, sure. through a metal zone pedal or or worse, PV practice amp in the basement with one right. microphone and the whole band playing right. was into a tape recorder. I don't, I don't mean like studio reel. I mean like cassette. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's its own thing, right? That That's like some cult <laughs> shit. That's not like people that are, uh, we started a metalcore band and we want to sound huge. It's like the, the traditional black metal, right? It's like this is supposed to sound like it was found in a garbage can, you know what I mean, like 20 years later or whatever. Maybe. See, the thing (laughs) is, I'm not sure. Uh, Like, I know that there's a few who have kept that mentality up because that's what they learned was supposed to be right. But then you get bands like Demon Borgir. Oh, right. And I don't want to say Cradle of Filth because they're considered them black metal, but to a layman they are. Uh, You get these bands that got really, really big who had especially Demo Borgir, who had incredible sounding productions mm-hmm. and just showed what's possible totally. in that style. Like, you didn't have to go there, but at least that's what was doable. If you wanted it to sound amazing, it could sound amazing. For sure. Even Satyricon records, where uh, it doesn't sound like Demo Borgir, like the soundtrack to Star Wars or something, but <laughs> just like drums, bass, guitar, super raw, but it still sounded huge. Mm-hmm. It didn't sound like it was done in a trash can right i don't know so it just these bands show that it was possible to sound good absolutely and also sound evil and keep the spirit alive in a weird way Mm -hmm. i know that that the original there's quite some argument in that scene about what's true and what's not right i don't really care what they say (laughs) most of my uh my black metal dealings have been in outliers you know like real weird shit that's like definitely wouldn't be considered i guess true or whatever you'd call it but like bands like uh botanist or or um, I guess Def Heaven is on, on another, 
you know, end of it all. Or uh, I've worked a bunch with this band, Mammalik. It's stuff that's like kind of fringe black metal stuff, but keeping with the like anonymous, some of it keeps with the anonymous, like one man mm-hmm. situation, you know, drum machine, like all that stuff. Like that's that's been most of my dealings. I haven't done, like Death Heaven would be the closest thing to like high production black metal that I've dealt with. You know what I mean? Other than some like, random mixing jobs or whatever, mastering type things. So have you gotten a lot of the one-man army black metal bands? A fair amount, yeah. So did I back in the day. Dude, yeah, it's a, it's an endearing style. Like, There's something about it that's like really appealing. I'm, I'm personally not a big metal fan. I'm not very well-versed in it, but I do like the one-man approach. It's pretty cool. Although I think digital technology is killing it, or like the charm of it. I spoke a bunch with a friend of mine about this, and the best analogy is like the Xerox. You did some black metal artwork, and you could Xerox it ten times and make it look all fucked up, and like, and it just it, it just happened to work out great because of the like analogness of the process, you know. But now yes. the the modern day version of that is just like a really badly pixelated like Photoshop job, and I feel like that's the same with the digital thing. Like people are they're moving off of the four track cassette, which has like so much character and can be fucked up in the in the most like beautiful sounding way. But like when you try to do that with a two channel interface and like audacity or something like that or or even a laptop mic or whatever it might be it definitely doesn't have that same <laughs> like endearing quality it doesn't plus also the whole idea of the one man band kind of thing mm-hmm. is now no longer unique right it's no longer wow that guy does everything and this is just his insanity put down on tape right that it, now everybody starts as whether they become a producer or a musician, almost the path now almost is uh, the one man band. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For starters, the, anyway. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, absolutely for yeah. starters. But that's what I mean. Um, that's like there's there's just new gateways into the world of music now, and I think that the one man band with a two channel interface um, <laughs> and Audacity or Reaper. That's right. like. That's how a lot of people get started. Now. Sure. That in and of itself is no longer special. Right. It's kind of the norm. Mm-hmm. So that's also part of it. We're very used to that scenario now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no longer outliers. So the band like Deaf Heaven, which is much more high production mm-hmm. quality black metal, it still sounds you know raw not bad raw right. it sounds like produced raw <laughs> it's it's hard to define but it still sounds real it still keeps the important parts intact and do you find that to be its own challenge no my 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 whole approach to just kind of any music is very is pretty traditional in terms of like i work on almost the idea of like what would this what would the approach be to recording this record whatever it might be if it was like pre-computer era you know, like mid seventies or something like that. So like my studio setup is very much rooted in like an analog based studio. Almost all the gear is based on something from like between the fifties and the, you know, early seventies or something like that. And yeah. So like all those records are done like live to tape, no click tracks, no like samples, no editing. It's all very organic. It's the same way that I would assume they recorded, you know, back in black or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> At what point do computers come into your process? 
It's different for every record, but I guess the most common thing would be we tracked a two-inch tape until we run out of room on the tape, and then we transfer the multi-track into Pro Tools and then continue from there. And then the mix is often, or almost always then, summed back into the console and mixed through analog hardware into tape again, you know, to two-track tape again. I really try to function as if it was that golden era and it's like always kind of in the back of my mind of like well it's the idea of like what if this band existed then almost you know what i mean and like how would the approach have been and so you know there's a couple tricks here and there there's digital stuff that we might do but like but not nothing too substantial so you just use it as one more tool but you don't use it as the centerpiece no it's definitely more like uh convenience and uh affordability so like the the records that i have done without a computer at all have been really rewarding but it's definitely not for everybody you know a lot of people need like a a recall that's going to be super accurate or they need um an archival method that doesn't cost a thousand dollars you know what i mean or whatever it might be so even just like having the tape backed up on the computer and being able to use the reels again frees up a bunch of budget for a band you know so it's kind of a utilitarian approach for it yeah and like and it really does afford a lot of like you know just i don't know convenient workarounds and stuff like that but again and actually i can't shit on it too much because the, the computer has like provided me with my entire career essentially because you know i've been able to work on all sorts of international stuff and i do a lot of mastering and uh or just like remote mix jobs and things like that or like people have been able to take things home and finish tracking and send it back for mixing stuff like that so it's great but if somebody told me tomorrow like you can never use a computer again to make a record i'd be like fuck yeah i'm stoked so it's it is what it is I think that that's a great answer, actually. I was wondering, how would you survive in this day and age without really using the computer too much? But you just answered the question before I asked it, which is that you do use it when you need to, especially. Absolutely. So it sounds to me like uh, your preference is to use it as little as possible, only as just one more tool in the toolbox for convenience and utility. But you'll, if you need to use it more, you'll use it more. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to be stupid about it. No, I mean, like when people send stuff to, to be mixed remotely, I end up doing it mostly in the box just for nothing more than um, flexibility. It just costs so much more and takes so much more time for me to like uh, send it all out, bring it back in. And then somebody listens to their mix and goes, oh, we forgot uh, whatever. And then they need to you know, send the track again for some reason. It's like, so I try to be smart about it. And for the most part, when I am using software, it's it's literally the exact same thing that I would be using in the room. Like I have plugins for basically every piece of hardware in the room. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a really similar process. Um, and I'm still like summing analog in my main, uh, my mix down chain is analog. There's a bunch of like outboard reverb and um, delays and stuff like that here so like we, we got a bunch of plates and like springs and shit like that so like that's all part of the process but yeah you have to kind of just know when to make it work and like the difference between a thousand dollar mix job and a two thousand dollar mix job or whatever like for a lot of people yeah it just it just makes sense so i'm sure that people come to you for you because that's how producers and mixers get hired is i think that 95 percent of the work comes on somebody's name sure. they want a particular person it's not necessarily based on the studio they work at other than maybe something like sterling sound Mm -hmm. so i imagine that 
lots of the mixed clients that will hear something like Deaf Heaven or, or whatnot. Sure. And they want the guy who worked on Deaf Heaven. Yeah. I'm just naming them. I, you know, you've worked on a ton of bands. I'd say them and like Jeff Rosenstock are the big are the biggest names that I've worked with consistently. So like, it's fair enough. I have gotten a lot of work because of all that. So the question I have is if you get bands who are coming because of them, Yeah, but they're international, you didn't get the chance to produce it. Right. Uh, so it doesn't have your sauce all over the production. Right. Who knows how they got it produced? Right. How does that conversation go? Because you know it, it'll never sound like Deaf Heaven. And I, the reason <laughs> I'm asking this is because, you know, I'm partners with Joey Sturgis in, in this business, and, um, you know, you guys have the most polar opposite production styles, but still, sure. with him... It's a similar thing. It's uh, people wanted the Joey Sturgis sound, so they would come to him for it. But, you know, they'd record it in three days in a way that's not necessarily compatible with the way he does things. Mm -hmm. And then be like, why doesn't it sound like one of your huge records? Right. I haven't run into that necessarily. So because I'm almost always tracking to tape, that process requires that a lot of work gets done on the front end. So when I'm tracking a band, I would say 80 plus percent of the processing on the recording is happening on capture. So like EQ and compression, oftentimes distortion, like whatever it might be, that's all happening as part of the capture, which I think always sounds better. And there's a whole like philosophical discussion that happens between engineers about like what what the most important parts of the process are, you know? Yeah. And, and, and everybody's always been kind of scratching their head about it. And to me, the thing that's consistently made the most sense is that starting from the source and then the microphone and the mic preamp and the EQ and the compressor and the whatever and the capture and, and all that. Every single thing is less important than the thing before it. I'm with you, actually. Yeah. And so just the sheer fact that I wasn't there to pick the mic and put it in the right spot means that it's not going to sound as good as it could have, you know, but you got to get past that to some degree and just kind of, you know, do your best. But yeah, I've, I've always thought that when I've worked on other mixes that I didn't, or worked on, you know, mixing records that I didn't record, I'm always a little bit bummed out that I couldn't be there for the capture, but you know, you do what you can. I'd rather mix it than just master it, you know, <laughs> like yeah. that's even more removed. It's like, so at least I can have a little bit of control over how it's all coming together. And honestly, sometimes it is the craziest things, like the most simple things will transform a, a multi-track. You listen to a rough mix and like, it's a rough mix that some guys, uh, you know, in Germany or whatever have been listening to for months. And they're like, man, we just can't get this record to come together. And you like, you listen to the rough and then you pull up the multi-track and you do two things that I do that always make me smile is just like phase checking everything and panning everything. <laughs> and it's like, this sounds totally fine. Like, I, how did, you know what I mean? Like, how did this make it so long without, without, without this, without these couple little processes? But you could, you could almost send the, the band back just a phase check, panned proper mix, and they're like, heads explode. Like, how did you do that? That sounds amazing. And it's like, I didn't do anything, you know? But anyway, yeah, it's a fun process, regardless. I do prefer to be there for the tracking, but, you know, you can't always. Man, I mean, face checking is pretty monumentally important. It really is. So on the topic of the hierarchy of what matters most, mm -hmm. I actually totally believe the source first. And it's interesting that you, you put it the way you put it, but I also... Um, and I've put out a lot of information about this um, over the years, but I really, really do think uh, it starts with what's actually creating the sound. Absolutely. Like, 
like the the guitar player playing that guitar is is going to be the way that that guitar mostly sounds. Mm-hmm. For instance, that singer, whatever's coming out of his mouth or her right. mouth, like those are your vocals. Uh, not everything else along the way is just tampering with that, enhancing or taking away. I discount it too. I know what you mean. Like there, there's times where people are like, "Hey, man, we're running out of time. Like, is there is it possible for us to like kind of take this home to do guitars or do something else? You know, so that you can spend more time mixing." or something. And I'm usually like, yeah, guitar is like the easiest thing in the world to record. You, you can absolutely do it at home. But I forget that half the time when somebody puts their guitar or you know, plugs their guitar in and plays, I'm like, oh, hey, this sounds like it's underwater. And then we fuck with their amp for a minute and it change, it can change like dramatically. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, maybe all I'm doing is putting a 57 or whatever, like on the cabinet. But like, I forget about all the parts before. Just the other day, I was like, hey, man, you're, you're on your neck pickup on this thing. Like, it really sounds dark and muddy can we try it the other way and the whole band went like holy shit that sounds crazy better you know or whatever but like when you're not there to do some of those little things like just sculpting that source is such a huge deal you know the the cliche term that great production is built on a thousand little decisions it is all those little decisions Mm -hmm. like you're on the wrong pickup right the amp is set just a little bit wrong like all those things put together and so many of those, yeah, that happen before any sound even goes into the microphone. Right, absolutely. So, yeah, maybe you did put the 57 on the cab, but also if you move a 57 over a centimeter and it's going to sound different. So, right. you know, it's not just putting the 57 on the cab. Knowing exactly where to put it on the cab is uh, sure. in, in conjunction with the right pickup selection and the right settings on the amp and the right person playing the right guitar you know all that stuff <laughs> yeah. like it's Absolutely. it's not that simple and i've always and it's with drums too i've always thought that the hierarchy is the drummer it himself herself sure. Sure. is the most important part because the way that they hit is you know it can you can have the same exact drum setup same heads same everything mics right. everything everything the same you change the human and it'll sound like a completely different drum set. And so the human is number one. The drum selection is number two. The head and tuning right. is number three. Then you get the sticks, then you get the microphones, then the preamps. <laughs> right, and the placement. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, exactly. But to me, the preamps and all that stuff, that's like way down the line. <laughs> that's so true. People freak out about microphone preamps. And then converters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. But I think the preamp thing became such a hot topic because a lot of bedroom uh, recorders, that's really the only thing that you kind of get into. You know, you have like, it's it's the first thing that you upgrade and it's like, a fairly affordable thing, you know, it really isn't that important. Like a high end mic preamp is a high end mic preamp. Like there's some, you know, you get into some variations, but like, I don't know. That's actually, I, I got rid of a bunch of stuff years ago so that I would have everything just be the same. So I didn't have to think about it anymore. And I love it. I love having to not think about it. That's a great, great idea. Actually, it's funny. Um, we, we do this event called the URM Summit, which is kind of like three days of like classes and it's like a convention mm-hmm. speeches whatever but we did this drum one where this guy who's an incredible incredible drum engineer drum tech his name is matt brown uh we showed that your interface or the preamps like we showed that it's almost meaningless it's not that yeah. they don't make a difference obviously great pre's are great pre's but sure 
if you have everything else right, the amount of difference they make. Yeah, it's 5%. Yeah, exactly. It's 5%. It's cork sniffing. That's exactly right. That's a great way to put it. If the other stuff isn't there, uh, then, you know, the difference between 60% and 65%, you're still getting a D on your drum sound. Yeah. If it's yeah. 30 to 35%, you still fail. Totally. You know? And if it's 90% there before the preamp to 95%, okay, so you're going from A minus to an A. Mm -hmm. But... Like that's that's all it does, and then so then you add good converters, and that's like two percent more. So you go from ninety five percent to ninety seven percent. Yeah. Okay. So you've gone from an A minus to close to an A plus because of those two things. But if you weren't already at an A minus with your with everything else, yeah. then you're not getting there. Yeah. No, it's great. That's that's really good. That's that's a great education for people to have. The problem is. This is just me speaking to my frustration. We'll go back to you in a second. I just have sure. to say this. This is my big f frustration about telling people things online. Uh, this is the big limitation. Uh, this is why I like it when people can come to our events in person mm -hmm. and see this stuff because I feel like they don't believe you. Until <laughs> <laughs> they hear it themselves. Yeah, because it's so easy to say the source, the source, the source. Right. Um, the the guitar player's hands, like tone is in the hands, like all that stuff. Yeah. The drummer's the most important part. Fuck your pre's. Yeah. Learn how to tune drums. Learn how to pick heads. Like, yeah. it's so easy to say that stuff. And I feel like it, a lot of the times it just goes over people's heads mm -hmm. until someone shows them, no, this is actually the truth. Like, if you want to really get good at drum sounds, learn how to fucking tune and learn how to pick your drums and your drummer and place your mics. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're just starting out, sometimes, you know, you're you're dealing with pretty amateur musicians because you're recording for free or whatever and like that's what yep. you get but like the one time that a band shows up that's actually really good and has all their shit kind of dialed already like they just sound amazing and you hear the difference in your recording uh that had nothing to do with you you did the same thing you did for the last 10 things you know but like all of a sudden it sounds amazing it's like that's when it really starts to kind of click of like oh my god I've done some pretty like scientific shootouts of, of all sorts of gear, of tape machines and converters and pre's and stuff like that. And yeah, I've had friends come in and just laugh at me when I'm like, dude, listen to the difference between these, whatever, you know, whatever these two things might be. Cause it is, it's, it's damn near inaudible when you start like in the big picture, you know? Well, the thing is, if you're competing at high levels, yeah. And by I mean high levels, like, okay, so in your world, it would make sense to me if you got better converters. Like when when people are in the professional world dealing with world class bands, I understand if they want a two percent edge. Oh yeah. Okay. Like that makes sense to me because that's like a race car driver. Like if they can get like a tenth of a second more, <laughs> they're gonna go for it and yeah. they're gonna modify their car. And that makes sense. If a, if a mastering engineer that works on major label projects can figure out how to get half a percent more quality sure. or volume without distortion, mm -hmm. they're gonna do it. And that could make a difference between their career continuing to take off or them getting passed over or you know like losing the losing the mix off between them right. and three three other hot shots like that two percent yeah half a percent one that makes a huge difference once you're already at that right top level but when you're learning it makes no difference it's irrelevant mm-hmm 
There was a somewhere in like a in one of the tape op books. There's a really good quote that says like you could record the best band in the world on a fucking blade of grass and it would sound incredible. You know, like <laughs> and it's, it's true. Like, it's true. Yeah. So, but yeah, when the better you get it up front, like yeah, you win. But yeah, and that goes to like the room and like all that shit. Like it's it's uh, it's really easy to get caught up in like the gear chase uh, just because it's fun and it's and it most of the time it's gratifying. I've I've had very few high end pieces of equipment come in where I'm like, what the fuck? This thing sounds terrible. It's a dopamine spike. Right. Most of the time, it's like, this does exactly what it says it was going to do, and I'm stoked. And it costs four grand, but, well, shit, you know? I guess guess that's the price that you pay. But sometimes it does sound terrible. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, like... I'm trying to think of, I've been through, so that's another thing, like when you, you know, I, I've only ever mostly worked at my own studio, and in the beginning that was just an inbox, and now it's like a full analog, you know, kind of high-end room, and when you don't go outside of your own place, you don't really get to try stuff unless you buy it, and we don't really, you know, we didn't have a lot of like rental opportunities, so I've been through my, my share of stuff, and like, I gotta say, I was, I'm very rarely disappointed, but it's it's just more about like finding what fits best for the situation, you know, um, or for, you know, for my situation or whatever. So like, you know, it turned out I didn't like having two channels of all the coolest channel strips or whatever, you know, I liked one the best and I got 32 of them. And, and uh, now I'm just happy with that. Which one is it? I use an API uh, 1608. So the API pre and then uh, the 550A EQ. So I have, I have it set up where all my channels are the same. So when I reach up to grab an EQ, I don't have to debate about whether that EQ sounds better on kick drum or not or whatever. You know what I mean? And I do have some like auxiliary stuff. I have some pull text that I really love and like 560s, the graphic EQs that I use mm-hmm. as needed. But for the most part, 75% of what happens goes through that same basic chain. I feel like the whole thing where there's two of each kinds of mm. pre's and uh, I think that that just part of that is because it looks cool. It does look cool. Even though they may not admit it. Right. I do think that there's a little bit of an element of that going on to where it just it looks cool to have like 32 uh 550As look pretty cool too. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> but I also I found that I liked the kind of cohesive um sound that comes along with having everything be real consistent as well. And again, it goes back to like hey, if it was 1965 or whatever it was or or I guess uh we'll say 1975, you know, you'd be at a console, you'd be using console pre's, you'd be like using console EQ and yes. you'd, and you'd be making a record. And like I I love the simplicity of it. There was uh, I just moved studios to a new facility and my um the designer I use is actually an API dealer. And so there was a whole talk of like, well what if we tried to upgrade the console um to something like more grandiose? Um cuz the 1608 is like it's it, for me it's absolutely perfect but it is pretty stripped down but after a lot of thought and after working on some bigger stuff that's like that was insane like their top of the line thing I, you know we did the last Def Heaven record actually we did you know I spent 10 days in front of a 64 channel API Vision which is like basically their SSL um, and like it wasn't for me I don't know I, I like I like a simpler more straightforward kind of like you know yeah stripped down kind of thing it's, it just speaks to me uh, you know, and I think that that actually is the other key ingredient about making proper choices is to get the stuff that speaks to you, not the stuff that everybody says is good, but the stuff, th- I mean, what you, obviously the, those APIs are fantastic, but hmm. making the gear choices 
of what works best for you, um, that's also part of choosing the right gear. Mm-hmm. A lot of people buy stuff, like a perfect example, and I don't think there's anything wrong with with this, but uh, like Shadow Hills, for instance, sure. that mastering compressor just looks really cool. It does. It looks like it's out of an H.R. Geiger movie or something. We have two of them here. Yeah, they look great and they sound great. They're yeah. great compressors, but I do think that a lot of people bought them because they look so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, that, that may be so. But I mean, I mixed through one for many, many, many years and I've still hit it occasionally, but I, it got passed by another one. But yeah, I mean, I love that thing. It, it gets so the the new spot has two, we have two control rooms now that are like kind of two private rooms and we outfitted very similarly, but like that was one of the things that they were like, "Oh yeah, we're definitely going to get one of those." And they use the shit out of it. Yeah, but, but you used it and you love it. That's different. Yes. That, but that's what I mean. You, you you have to use the stuff that works for you. Mm-hmm. Not just looks cool. I know personally of a lot of students first getting to the point where they can afford some gear trying to invest in stuff like that mm-hmm. without really knowing what works for them and what doesn't. I guess that's the only way you're going to find out. But I just think that it's misguided to focus on that stuff first. Absolutely. However, you know, when it does work for you, that's what works for you. Yeah. I guess I'm just speaking more to the to the point that you were looking at going to the much more expansive API console. Yes. And chose to go with the more stripped down one mm-hmm. because that's what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. So... Do you get bands who come in who don't want to like don't want to do things your way? Like yes. they want your sound, but they don't want to do things your way? Yeah, it's a common phone call that I get. It's like, hey, we want to come do a record. We really love records X, Y, and Z that you did. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, how do you, you know, like this is how I usually do it. What do you think? And they're like, well, we usually do it the other way, you know, like the opposite way of that. And it's like, well... The reason may be that you like the records that I did that, you know, was because <laughs> was because they were done with the whole band playing live without a click track and they were done to tape. So where, you know, where you're limited on what you can do uh, in terms of editing and, you know, you can't keep 20 takes because it's expensive um, and whatever. And so I, I've I'm thankfully at the point now where like it's busy enough where I can I don't have to. I don't have to take every single call that that comes in as like, okay, yeah, we're going to record for better or worse. Now I've been able to be like, you know, maybe I'm not the guy for you, you know, like, because to me, making records like that sounds like fucking so painful. Like I I haven't tracked a record one piece at a time in, I I couldn't even tell you, like many, many years for a rock band anyway, or most bands, you know, it doesn't like it serve the end result to me. Um, And so, and it's not fun. It's not fun for the players. It's not fun for the engineer. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I like to keep it loose. I like people to have fun and like be relaxed and comfortable. And yeah, I don't know. Recording one fucking dude's guitar part for two days, like, it doesn't sound fun to me at all. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, 
Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. And Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy enhanced to find out more. Okay, so it's been years, but that means that there was a time period where you did have to do it that way. How did you get to the point where uh, bands just agree to go along with your way? And the reason I'm asking Mm -hmm. is, uh, and I ask this a lot because I think that this is one of the most important things a producer can earn which is trust like at the beginning trust is really tough to get from a client because you have no track record you're still learning so it's hard to really get them to totally go with your vision because they that trust isn't there but as you go along you build up more trust and i'm sure that now you get a bunch of clients who love your sound and you get to work with people who are down to do it your way because they love what you do mm-hmm. and they trust you. Yeah. Most importantly, they trust yeah. you because of the track record you've built up. I got pretty good at selling the idea and and giving everybody like a fail safe, essentially. So like, so for me, it's really important that the band tracks live. Um, and and if they're adamant about using a click track, they can absolutely use a click track. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, there's very few things that I'll just be like, absolutely not. And I always tell the band, let's try it. If it's not for you, it's not for you. But like, let's at least try it. And so the thing that I would do is isolate the drums, isolate the amps in a, you know, a separate room, and then like, my spiel was always like, well, if you absolutely hate how this goes, we'll throw everything away but the drums and then we'll just start over, you know? And no one ever did that because it sounds better when you, when everybody plays better when they play together. Like, okay, like on a Deaf Heaven record, as, as an example, the band tracks live to tape without a click track. They do the, they did 10 minute long songs in one whole take and that's it. That's the drum take. That's the, the bass and guitar takes. And like, might punch in a couple little flubs on a guitar or a bass. We might edit a fill later in Pro Tools, but like what you're hearing is like very much what happened. And then um, we'll double all the guitars and we might spend a little bit more time on on that top layer of guitar because it's one person at a time. You know, we might spend a, a hair longer getting the tone or like, you know, punch in a little more often or something like that. But it's it's so 
organic and straightforward. And, and like, I don't really remember, it's been 15 years that I've been doing this and like, uh, as far back as I can remember, this is how I've done it. And so even at the very beginning, I was, we tracked live all in the same room, amps and drums and the whole thing. And I've, I've actually gotten back into doing that. Uh, and people love it. If you, when you tell a band they don't have to wear headphones to record, they're like, fuck yeah. Like, I didn't even know that was a possibility, you know, like you end up being like the cool uncle or something. So I don't know. I, I guess I just kind of like, I, I offered people a fail safe and I offered people like the comfort up front of saying like, Hey, I absolutely will not make you do anything you don't want to do, but like, let's just try this and see what you think. Fair enough. Yeah. And you know what, actually the way that you describe doing it, I mean, I remember reading interviews with George Harrison saying that they did stuff that way too, or they would get the main take with everybody. Mm -hmm. And then he would just go in and, uh, you know, double stuff or right. overdubs, do a harmony here, harmony there. Like, you know, obviously do the kind of stuff that you have to do because, you know, he doesn't have four arms right. um, to hold two guitars with. That sounds to me like the way that records were traditionally made. Totally. And there's a beauty to that. It's funny, though. I'm sitting here thinking about doing that with the kinds of bands I worked with. Mm. I'm now full-time URM. URM kind of exploded and oh, took cool. my life over. Well, that's awesome. It's it's cool. Yeah, it's been a few years now to where it's literally the only thing I can do. But before that, the majority of my production career was insanely fast and technical extreme metal. Mm. And I can't imagine recording those <laughs> bands live. But the thing is, I totally know what you mean, and I agree with you that for certain types of bands for and I think that for certain types of music that there's nothing better than getting them playing together like I remember I had this major label producer come in once to my studio like I had just finished an extremely technical death metal band and I was about to start a technical progressive band mm -hmm. like a week later like the kind of band where if you if you count the number of bass drum hits there are in a song you get like 1800 literally literally awesome. those records they kind of have to be done a person at a time mm -hmm. piece by piece like putting a puzzle together sure a very very because they'll sound like fucking shit otherwise <laughs> just because because they don't play better when they right. are all playing together because they can't hear like they 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 can't hear the articulation right because it's so has to be so fast and so precise right. that actually hearing everything else going on is a distraction. It, but that's different genre music, right? Well, how do those bands play live? They have very, very good in-ear mixes. Oh, I see. And also, a lot of them in their in-ear mixes only have like a click track in their guitars, Whoa. for instance. So it's like it's a whole different yeah. discipline. Yeah. Like it's a different mindset. Like a lot of them, or they'll have like the drums, but like down like 15 dB or something. Whoa. And click track and their own guitar yeah that that's in the in-ears that's that's how a lot of them do it wow yeah because you have to really really focus on what you're doing or you're gonna right. you're gonna fuck up yeah so yeah it's a different world however in that 
one week gap, this major label producer who was doing some spec thing mm -hmm. with like a rock band came in and just rented my place. And they did it all, you know, all mm -hmm. playing in the same room and everything. And they were just so fucking awesome. <laughs> it had such great feel and such great sound. And it was so fast. It, mm -hmm. The recording was so fast. I was so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Yeah, jealous. I mean, that's like, that's every day, man. It's so fucking fun. But yes, I know what you mean. And, and, and honestly, I don't, I know that I couldn't do a record like what you're describing. Like, it's not, it's just not in my, uh, my temperament or whatever. Like, I, I don't have the wherewithal to deal with that for like however long that takes. You know what I mean? Believe me, I like what I'm doing now a lot <laughs> <better>. <laughs> Oh, shit. Yeah, that's something. I mean, the thing is, though, a lot of people are like real, real bands you know yeah it's kind of like real men drink beer kind of right. thing. It's like real man's play together it's like yeah i get it real bands do play together but this kind of music yeah. is no it's next level yeah i understand it's its own beast like mm -hmm. the rules it's like we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation yeah. rules don't necessarily apply for heavy music for sure. uh, whether w any genre heavy music and i think that with extreme metal uh the rules of other styles of heavy music don't apply to that either yeah no that makes total sense yeah it's almost like creating electronic music mm -hmm. but with players right i i can understand if you would hate working on it i actually think that it's very tedious yeah and honestly i hope nobody hates me for saying this working on it for a while made me want to stop because mm. i started to realize that it wasn't the reason i got into music right. in the first place yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm i would be so terrible at that be mostly because like even even now like it's loose enough already and people are like they'll ask like hey you know we're interested in like in you kind of like policing the quality of the takes and stuff like that but i'm i'm so bad at it because i like the way it sounds when like like human shit happens, you know? And so like, I'm like, nah, don't fix that. That sounds cool, you know? Uh, and they're like, well, but you know, but it was a whatever, you know, it was a flub. And it's like, yeah, but that flub sounds awesome. Like leave that flub, you know? Like people talk about moments on records where like you can hear the fucking whatever, the drummer drop his keys in the middle of a take or something like that. You know what I mean? Like they don't talk about like, dude, did you hear that record? There's no, there's nothing of note that happens, you know, like, <laughs> or like nothing out of the ordinary happened on that whole record. Did you hear that? Nobody talks about that. You know, it's, it's, it's cooler when you can hear somebody talking in the middle of something or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't know. I've done records where we just left all the doors open the whole time and you could hear dudes playing foosball in the kitchen and like, you know, during like an overdub on a guitar and it's like, there's something about it. I don't know, man. Like just not, not giving a shit about that stuff. I'm totally with you on that. Not just, you know, there's also some high, high production bands that have that ethos mm -hmm. and it makes a big difference like for instance muse mm -hmm. uh, i remember getting the multi-tracks for that song knights of cydonia that came out like 10 years ago or something but at the time it was very very high level rock production and they're yeah. you know they're a huge huge rock band like about as big as it can get before going to that stratosphere level right. of rock band which i mean they're kind of bordering on anyways but uh, you know, they work with the best of the best of the best of the best. And I got some of those multi-tracks and they had flubs of the guitars too. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that the guitar solo or guitar solos were just like the dude going fucking ape shit yeah. on the guitar and they left in the flubs and they didn't matter. And you can't really hear that there's flubs in the mix. But the point is like you could, when you hear these tracks separated, you could tell that that what was being captured was a dude 
putting his all into the guitar and that yeah. they were not going note by note. They were not like going like three notes by three notes. They were letting the dude fucking rip. Yeah. And yeah, there was a little bit of flubbery. The feel and the expression in it was so far beyond right. any of those flubs that they were obviously kept for a reason. Right. Like I have this band coming uh, in two days for like a 10 day session and they're doing some like kind of grungy, like spacey pop rock type stuff. And we've talked a bit about production, but I can tell it's going to, we're going to have to figure out our like, you have to really weigh a lot of priorities, you know? So like at this new spot, we have this really big live room. It's like a thousand square feet, you know, I guess not really big, big. And you can get some pretty great, like, giant open mm-hmm. drum room type sounds you know and, and, and as much as i like that it's cool i do love a big drum room sound it's really loud and it's got some good like slap back and all that stuff but i've been getting such good results putting everybody in the same room with no headphones that you can't really get that same big open drum room sound because there's like you know half stacks and eight by tens just blaring in there as well so it becomes the you have to weigh out like what's more important to us the feel or the or, or the production or you know what i mean like like will we play better and get better takes that sound better overall like if we're all in the same room without headphones like most likely yes but albini drums sound really good you know what i mean so you kind of have to weigh out all your all your options and figure out what's most important and do you figure that out and like in your experience or the way you work do you figure that out through experimentation like you set it up all together see how that works and then move it or how how do you go about that yeah i've had people i've had people go both ways where we're 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 all separated um but they're playing live and they're like yeah this feels weird even sometimes they're even like a lot of times i'll have all the guitar players in the control room just playing off the monitors in the control room while the drummer's the only one uh having to wear headphones and he's like or he or she is in the uh, live room or whatever i've had people have that not work but i've also had people all be in the same room without headphones and have that not work and like it's not that hard to just rearrange sometimes a band will demo for their first day that they're in the studio and will work out all those kinks you know try it a couple different ways and try a couple different things but yeah it's a hard decision to make sometimes so they know in advance though that step one is we're going to figure out the best way to do this and so don't don't uh don't think that we're going to be tracking today necessarily we're going to be figuring things out yeah if we talk about that i mean like honestly most of the time we're tracking like we're we're taking the first real take two to two and a half hours into the load in like from load in wow that's so fast holy shit yeah i move fast regardless so like we don't yeah there's not a lot of time mulling over a bunch of shit it's like get the sound right just like go you know like i I guess the new place is kind of big and so it it takes a little longer to do stuff so maybe we're more at like maybe three hours at the old spot uh it was like it was so streamlined like yeah two hours in we could definitely be like into getting the first takes you know like nailed down but i'm blown away i mean i don't know i don't really do a lot (laughs) you know like i said like you you put the mics in the right make sure the source sounds right put the mics in the right spot and like you're you're 75 percent there the rest is just like some a couple little eq tweaks and like hitting the compressor the right way or whatever it's not like there's not a a ton of like deliberation and whatever your records speak for themselves i'm just blown away because that's so fast compared to how i'm used to working oh yeah i just come from a different school so it it blows my mind when people are able to get great results that quickly because it makes me question everything i've ever done (laughs) but it's also a whole different kind of sound it is but like i'm used to when there's a budget enough for it Mm -hmm. like when there's a band with a budget that's not you know shit Mm -hmm. 
three days to get drum sounds. Whoa. Yeah, right? I've never done that on any record I've ever worked on. So day one, uh, we figure it's going to sound all right by the end. By the end of day two, it's close, so we'll track something. Right. You're going to redo it on day three. Yeah, we're going to redo it on day three because by the end of day three, the drums are going to sound so damn good that we're not going to want to keep anything right. that we might have done right. day one or maybe day one, but right. definitely day two. By day three, but I guess the thing I noticed was that even if I start tracking on day one, by day three, the drums sound so much better. <laughs> I just wanted to redo everything anyways. Yeah. I've never had enough budget to even do that, like on a record. Most people that come through aren't spending very much money. So like the there, you just have to figure out how to make it fit into the, the time you've got, you know? And that sometimes that means mixing the same day. So I, I've tracked records live and mixed them the same day and like because that's what they had they had they had i'm five hundred dollars a day and they had five hundred dollars to fucking to, to record a record and so it's like well okay i mean we can do it you know like i can i can have you ready to record in two hours and then you have two hours to record your record and then four hours to mix it or whatever it might be see the thing is though and your productions sound great i think that it's uh genre thing too oh yeah absolutely and, and as time has gone on i've gotten like more and more people that are on the same page have gravitated towards me in this place and stuff like that there's no arguing or anything everybody everybody's kind of mm -hmm. already like in the zone before we even start you know also i get a lot of repeat people so like we've you know it's like oh this worked great last time let's do it again uh, or let's do it even more fucking stripped down than we did last time or something you know it's very very important to work with people that you're on the same page with otherwise I agree. it's an exercise in how much hell can you endure yeah so let, let's talk about that for a second about repeat clients because i think that that's actually you know especially for the people who are first starting to build up their clientele mm -hmm. and are you know trying to do this professionally i think that repeat clients are typically a huge part of a producer's work like it if you were having to get new clients every time i don't mean you i mean the universe yeah, yeah. but if the producers having to get new clients every single time i think that they're going to have a much tougher time uh staying employed yeah uh, i think that repeat clients are a huge part of where it's at but so what in your opinion keeps people coming back to you why do you think they come back to you and what do you have any advice on scoring repeat clients? Oh man, I, that's a really good question, and I don't know if I have a really good answer for it. But well, let's talk about it. I have a lot of repeat clients. I, I have a lot of clients that I've done their entire discography for their band. You know what I mean? Like where they've like just literally never gone anywhere else again. And some of them go all the way back to when I was at my parents' house. So like yeah, there's there's like the this band Gracion from um, from San Francisco. They're they're kind of a proggy metal band, the three piece with a, a woman who plays cello and sings and. Then and a dude on guitar and a dude on drums and they're fucking good and they've been recording with me since i was at my parents house and we just you know we finished their last record about a year ago how long has it been since you were at your parents house uh almost 15 years or you know 13 or whatever wow yeah and so like i don't know i mean like so, some of these people so okay a big part of it i think is being part of the music community not just be, not just being some dude who in a studio or some person in the studio so like a lot of these people i played music with when i was young and like we were part of the same scene and community, you know, and so we and, and maybe we respect each other as musicians and we respect each other's like sensibilities and whatnot. That's a, that's a part of it. Another part of it is um, serving the the artist or whatever, the client or whatever you want to, you know what I mean? Like just 
be, being someone who supports these people and what they're trying to achieve and not getting in their way or not, or not like you're just making, making them comfortable and giving them what they want. Basically. I don't know. Um, yeah. And not steamrolling their vision. No, not at all. I mean, you're there to serve their, their thing. You got to just kind of like, know every, every producer says this, but like, and I don't even, I don't even know if I consider myself a producer, honestly, as much as just an engineer, but like, yeah, it's about just kind of like featuring the things that work the best and like making them shine. And, and, and that, that sometimes that's all it is. Well, I mean, yeah, lots of producers say it, but I think they say it because it's true. Oh, it is. Yeah. Um, like, can we talk real quick about the community aspect? Yeah. Because uh, interestingly enough, we put out a course last year called Career Builder that was exactly for that, for our students that want to turn this into their careers. Like we make it real clear that becoming like a CLA or something yeah. is probably not going to happen. Right. I mean, it'll happen to somebody that they get that big, but it's not going to happen to everybody. And there's, you know, you can't count on someone you work with having meteoric success and then using that momentum like right. that does happen it does, but yeah, it's sure. not the norm yeah. and there's a lot more engineers who just make a living off of this and enjoy their work mm -hmm. and love the fact that they get to engineer and produce for a living than there are people who are multi-millionaire stars from it sure so we try to keep things realistic and the, one of the things that we've told them over and over is to forget marketing, forget any of that shit. That's so right on. It's not about making money. It's not about having a career. It's about doing this thing that you love and doing it the absolute best that you can. And like, yeah, I mean, as, uh, while you're talking about this, I'm thinking about, it's also about like, maybe not extreme sacrifice, but it's about a lot of sacrifice. Like for 12 and a half years, I lived in a warehouse space where the studio was so that I could afford to have a recording studio. You know what I mean? Like. I illegally lived in a warehouse that was like not fit for living, basically, like where the windows didn't open and there was like no heating. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Five years of that. I literally lived in like the machine room of the recording studio in like a five by 10 room. So we have a student named John McLucas, uh, one of our top students who he moved to L.A. recently, mm -hmm. like a year and a half ago, uh, and he lives in his studio uh, he lives on the couch in his studio yeah uh so that he can afford it and his career has been slowly taking off since he moved there he works his fucking ass off yeah. um i know he's one of our best students because he's been around since for a while and he's one of the most active and helpful to other people but like this is this is what people do so i'm getting to see it now in early stages with our students that the ones who do move to where the work is yeah. and will live on couches mm -hmm. for years on end just to be able to afford to have a spot to work in the ones who will do that stuff mm -hmm. um obviously combined with working on their skills but yeah. the ones who will do that stuff are the ones who will prosper absolutely I've only ever lived where the studio was like in 15 years. I've never not lived at the studio because I can't because I there's just not another option. I mean, at this point, it's not as uh, as punk as it sounds. I have like an apartment in my new building. that's like a proper apartment. You know what I mean? But like but I have to be in this building or else I wouldn't be able to afford to have this recording studio. You know, like it's just part of the the thing, you know, like you, it's Kurt started the same way. He had he lived in his where his studio was, you know, and he's he's been able to like move out of that building. But like he also doesn't live in. Uh, uh, the Bay Area. That's true. That's true. But I've had people multiple times 
who, who were like, hey, I'd love to come by and talk to you about kind of what it takes and like what you did and all that stuff. And the first thing that I notice is that they pull up in like a $30,000 car. <laughs> like that, that happened multiple times or it, it might even be more. I'm not good with car prices, but like, uh, you know, if you're driving a BMW and wondering why, like you don't have the studio set up you're looking for yet, you know, or whatever, like your priorities are totally fucked. Like I don't have anything. I don't own anything nice in my life except for recording studio stuff because like it's where my priorities have been for the last like decade and a half. Basically. I didn't buy my first, uh, real, adult car until I was like 36, I think. Yeah. Because I, just, I put my, all my money into studio and music. So I drove the, my band got a van when we got <laughs> signed back in like 2005. And, uh, and I ended up with the van cause I paid it off right. uh, little by little. And it was like, a it looked like a, a molester van. Like I felt so <laughs> weird. Like, so like if you go on a date or something yeah, and you're yeah. like 35 and there's valet parking or something and you pull up in that van, it just is. But I did that because it was like, why should I spend money on a car? Yeah. But then once, once URM got going and I was like, this new life. I'm getting a car, but I was 36 before I got my first adult car. Dude, I'm, I'm 37. I still don't know, know if I have an adult car. You know, I have some beater that was like belonged to my grandfather and then my dad. And it was like, okay, well, this is free. You want this car? I'm like, fuck, yeah, I'll take that car. I mean, why not? <laughs> However, the stereo in the car is very nice. So... Um, that again is a priority because you your priorities straight. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it, it does require a kind of like whole life, uh, handover. Uh, and like, and I commend people like my girlfriend, my current girlfriend, who's been with me for eight years has dealt with some shit, man. I mean, she, she lived at the studio. The old studio was not soundproofed. You know what I mean? Like, wow, she's a trooper. Yeah. I mean, the space was big. There was like a 2,500 square foot warehouse space and the, and the studio was like less than a thousand of it. But like, but if a band was recording, you might as well have been in the room with the band. You know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't soundproof. It was part, it, it, and so like you know, that's not always the funnest thing. <laughs> or like when when a band needs to use the kitchen, it's your kitchen. Or when they need to use the bathroom, they have to walk through your living space. God, man, you're uh, you're describing my life. Yeah, yeah. At my studio before this, like it was a residential studio in Florida, mm -hmm. and my girlfriend and I lived at it. And so, so basically, it was like a compound. So half the studio was across the street with my then partners, but the drum room and my studio were in my house, and my house was the lodging for the bands yeah. also, and that's where we lived. And there was one kitchen, and so yeah, and so there's a drum session happening. She was basically confined to our bedroom or like our porch room, but it was basically like being in the same room right. as the drums. Right. And then, yeah, it, you have to deal with band members using the kitchen all day and all that. And she put up with it. And, and sometimes it's such a beautiful, positive experience. I work with a ton of close friends of mine and it's great. And it's especially great because I, 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 otherwise I don't know if I'd have much of a social life, but like because my friends can come here and we can all hang out and make records, uh, it's like, it's great. But like, it, and she's friends with a lot of the same people. So it was like, it'd be a, it'd be a great, oh my God, so-and-so is going to be here, to all, you know, for a week. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, but sometimes it's just some rando like bedroom metal kids who like don't know how to interact with other human beings. And they're like, they're walking through your house and they're not even like acknowledging that you're there. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and so, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's not always a shiny, positive experience, but so anyway, I commend her for sticking around through all that because now we live in like a real house and like daily we're like, can you believe that we live in this real situation? You know, um, like now it's soundproofed. You can't hear anything that's happening in the studio anymore, which is 
fantastic. Thank you, Wes Show, for my soundproofing design. That's just, it takes a special kind to uh, stick that out. And yeah. funny that you say that about the rando metal kids. Like, I remember this one time, at first I was, I had no rules because I didn't think about it. Right. But, uh, but then eventually I had to start laying down rules because just so that we wouldn't go crazy because we couldn't have like drunk metal dudes at, in our kitchen at 3 a.m. or something like no. so there, there we had to start having rules like there's a, a door that closes at 11 p.m. and it reopens when the session starts the next day right and so you know this is our house from yes from this hour to this hour uh and we had to do things like that but still like i remember this one time where we had real clear instructions about trash because you couldn't just leave trash outside because the bears would get it like there were fucking huge (laughs) bears we were like we're half a mile away from this federally protected bear reserve whoa that was like 400 acres of bear land. Holy shit. And so the, yeah, man, these bears, what like state? big black Florida. You wouldn't think okay. of Florida, you think alligators, right? But no, bears. Right, yeah. uh, so these <laughs> bears would just like come onto people's property. They'd like, uh, you know, they dragged some lady out of her garage once. They oh will God. eat your trash. My then business partner, he put his uh, trash on this porch that was fenced in with a padlock. Mm-hmm. The fucking bear broke that thing open. It was like, it was like, it bent the bars off. It looked like the Incredible Hulk had busted out of. Uh, prison or something like Whoa. that it, just to get so anyway so it's like a it's an actual problem right uh so i would there'd be very specific instructions like when you f- fill up your trash just take it to the garage and put it in the trash cans there and then you know there's a certain hour of every week when the trash can a trash man is coming and we go out there 15 minutes in advance Whoa. yeah it had but like this one band would just leave their trash in my hallway like huge bags of it. Mm. It smelled like shit. So I would put it back in their room because it's like, guys, just put it where I told you to put it. But I'm not going to carry your trash for you. Uh, Like, because that's, we're getting off on the wrong foot here. Like, I'm not your your trash man. Like, we should act like respectful adults. But then the problem I had with situations like those is sometimes if you put your foot down, it makes the session weird. Right. But then you have to put your foot down because if you don't put your foot down, the these people are, are staying with you. Well, no, these people <laughs> are staying with you for five weeks. Oh, my God. And so, so if they're already on day two, just like leaving trash everywhere, if you don't say something, then, you know, you're going to have problems with my girlfriend uh, living there, too. And, like, guys, like, just ransacking the house Dude, for five weeks. lodging is some next-level shit. I, I commend you for that. Like, <laughs> like that's where I, I had to start kind of drawing the line. When it, when it was friends and they're in from out of town and they have no place, you know, or whatever, it's like, I, I'm happy to, to accommodate. But, like, when it's people you don't know, I mean, at, at least in our situation, there wasn't, like, it was very open, like, floor plan. And so, like, you just don't get off work for 24 hours a day until they're gone because you're, like, babysitting, basically. You know? Uh, it's not fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, like... Like, it's very tough to take a day off because yeah. people expect that since they're there and you live there, you're just down to work 24-7. Right. right. <laughs> and even if you're not working, you're now, like, entertaining or, like, you're just tending after yeah. somebody or whatever, you know, and, like, yeah, nah. Yeah, so therein lies the challenge because the moment you start putting down those rules, though— right. 
that kind of that can seep into your relationship with them sure. while working. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a catch twenty two. Yeah. So what do you prefer? Do you prefer to have some semblance of a life, <laughs> or are you going to just basically be on tour all the time? Oh, because man. it's like be, it's like being on tour. If they, yeah. I mean, you know. So I do. Yeah. Sorry to go on that rant, but yeah, no, cool. I agree with you. The, the sacrifice involved in actually doing this is something that I think. They just got to get comfy with it. Right. And I can see if they pull up in a BMW and uh, Dona and, you know, are wondering how to get an internship or something. Right. Like, they're, they're probably going to have problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the other thing, though, that we've told them, and I want to go back to something you said, is you said you were part of the music scene. We've told people that instead of advertising and marketing and trying to do all this social media garbage and Mind you, I'm all about social media for a company that makes products sure. like my own. But for a studio, I think you need to be personally involved with people for word of mouth. Yeah. And for, uh, so become a part of your community is what we've always said. Well, and you can't even try. Do you talk about that? Like bands get turned off pretty quickly by somebody coming up to them at a show and being like, hey, like I record. I'd really like to record you. You you almost can't even like, you can't even talk about the fact that you record. You have to just show up and just be part of the community. Somebody else will bring it up. But like when you start selling yourself, you don't turn people off any faster than that. Like you just can't do it. No matter how much you like a band, you can't be like, oh man, I, you should really come record with me. It's a terrible way to go. <laughs> so like it, it is. Yeah. You just have to show up. You just have to show up and be part of it and like don't try and don't think about it. Uh cuz yeah, it's not yeah, it it it's not about that. It's just not the way. But word of mouth will take you all the way to the end. I mean, that's it. That's all you need. It's interesting how I feel like the secret to this and it's a bad word networking, but the secret to this networking thing is to not do it with an end in mind. Right. The only thing to do it for is to try and have a good time make some friends, be a part of whatever it is you're attending, Mm -hmm. but do that regularly and do good things for the community you're a part of. And then eventually other people will talk about your work for you. And when the time is right, people will bring the conversation up and that's when you can sell them on it. Mm -hmm. But if you are the one to broach the topic no, it's terrible. You're going to punish me. That's people. some cringeworthy shit right there. I mean, like, and I'm not saying I've never done it. I've done it. You know what I mean? But like, uh, that's how you know. But that's how I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it's tough to like be hungry for it and not want to try some somewhat, you know what I mean? But like, you got to just show up and hang out and like, and, and, and let it take. Oh, the other thing I would say though, especially for people, you know, starting out, like my goal when I moved out of my parents' house was keep the overhead so low that like, even if I need to get a part-time job, that's my only income because I don't make any money recording, uh, I can pay my rent. That was like the number one. So like the, the literal absolute worst case scenario was I, I have this recording studio that I can use anytime I want to do anything I want in, even if I don't make any money doing it because nobody showed up, but like, but I can go work at this coffee shop or whatever it is, or I was going to try to substitute teach, uh, which I, I never had to do, but the rent was so low that like, it didn't matter if nobody showed up because like you could pay for it somehow. And so that's, that's, that's kind of been the, the name of the game forever. It's the reason why I was able to buy equipment through through the last 10 years or plus or whatever was because like the overhead was so low that when I did start making money, it could go right into the to the gear getting. And then it was actually like a good time to do that because it was like, you know, skills were developing and all that stuff. And like, uh, 
um, yeah, it all kind of just fell into place. But yeah, that's why I lived in my parents' house for a while in my twenties because uh, no overhead, yeah, and I could funnel any money that came to me into studio gear or music gear. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That's the reason, and uh, you know, not everyone has that. You know, that's a fortunate situation, and I'm eternally thankful for it. And I realize that not everybody has that uh, that situation, but you got to take the advantages where you have them uh, because, yeah, being able to afford to do this is crucial mm-hmm. unless somehow you manage to land an internship with somebody who's going to love you and float you right. and then to give and then hire you and, you know, like and then put you up, you know, which can happen. Right. But that's also very rare yeah it can happen though it's happened to people i know who have uh landed in the right situation they were the right person to work under the right person Mm -hmm. and uh you know things just worked out but still even then even in that case where they had they got under the right producer uh there was still a time period where they didn't make shit right when they were interns right and they had to figure out a way to survive and then when they started getting paid they still didn't get paid that much Mm -hmm. so you know they had to make it work for years before they started making adult you know basic adult money right i mean i i got lucky every step of the way when it came to that sort of thing you you know what i mean like i i did i was paying rent at my parents house when i started recording there but like uh because i was trying to finish school and all that shit but the community was so good to me that within a year and a half of literally having a dell computer and an mbox i was i was paying the rent at my parents house from only recording i was i was able to quit my job and and then about a year after that was when i moved to the first whatever you know atomic garden that's fast It, it was and that's speaks to me only to the community that I was a part of and that, that like there were enough people and like we were doing enough stuff and I was a you know in a relatively relevant band at, at the time and all that stuff helps I mean like I, I've toured extensively all over the world and every time I've come back with clients without trying you know what I mean like not just because like oh you record oh cool like we're recording you can you mix it I'm like yeah sure like you know they liked my band's record um which is fucking amazing now looking back on it because that was some of the most embarrassing records I've made it's not <laughs> (laughs) Not musically, but like production wise, you know, but yeah, it's like, it's all about just like being out there and doing shit. I got to say that. So I also have toured the world extensively, Mm -hmm. um, was in a band that, uh, we got signed to Roadrunner, put out three records, did a bunch of touring Mm -hmm. and the whole bit. And it never got that big, but still we did the whole thing. And, uh, then when I got into a studio scenario, I had already been recording for years, but I got into my first big studio scenario uh, with two partners who had never toured. Uh-huh. And I felt, I mean, they're way better producers than I ever was, or, uh, you know, they're amazing. But the I had a connection with the bands because of having been a touring musician where the, I could understand the bands on a level that, you only can understand if you've been in their shoes, yeah. I feel like. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's, it does, and it, I feel like that really does help. Like, having, I'm sure that the fact that you've toured and that you have been on that side of the glass mm. um, or that you have that shared experience and you know what it's like, you, you've you done the musician thing, There, that gives you a relatability that 
you can't get any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, and, and did I tour the world to market my recording career? Like, no, I toured the world because I wanted to play music, you know, but like, yeah, but it sure fucking helped. It's crazy, man. And like, yeah, and it's fun. You And you build some of the most lasting relationships of your life. And and it's like, it's extremely rewarding. And none of it has anything to do with marketing or, uh, <laughs> or selling yourself or anything like that. Man, marketing is so bad for yeah. producers. Yeah, it is. It's interesting though. Um, we we get this a lot because people will be like, you guys are putting out Facebook ads and all that. It's like, yeah, well, we're selling a product. Right. We are not selling production services. If you look at my partner, Joey, who uh, he never advertised his productions ever. He advertises plugins mm-hmm. and stuff, but he does not. He never, when he was mixing or producing, never placed one single Facebook ad, didn't even have a website for right. it. Um, and if you look at most successful producers, I mean, just about all, uh, they tend to have really outdated websites, have very little <laughs> social media presence, yeah. like some more than others, but like in general, it's pretty lacking. You're too busy to update your website. Yeah. So, okay, I'm in this new situation where I have a new studio and I have, there's there's a second room with a, with a second engineer in it that like is basically running his own business out of out of his side. And so we have to keep things a little more current, but like, but the, seriously, the last thing I need right now is more exposure <laughs> because I'm so fucking busy that like that if if five more people called and wanted to get in between now and may or whatever like i would just feel bad having to tell them no when you if you if you're successful at it the last thing you need is a working website or like a whatever but but some people i don't know as i'm saying that i just updated my website yesterday so well i mean i'm not saying it's a bad thing no and a lot of producers have websites it's i'm just saying that it they're not the what moves the needle in a producer's career yeah no nothing bad comes out of having a website site that's like shows what you've got right. obviously and how to contact you but i guess what i'm saying is that for people who are first starting to build their name mm-hmm. uh over focusing on stuff like the website yes. and marketing or all that that's exercise in futility mm-hmm. that's not what gets people through the door word of mouth and your portfolio yeah. are what get people through the door and then maybe if they hear about you, yeah, maybe then they'll come check out your site and confirm that you are who people say you right. are and stuff. <laughs> but that's generally what it's for. Or like if you're if you're actually looking for somebody, uh, then yeah, go to the site, right. find them on their site. But but you're already looking for them. Yeah, totally. And it's and it's there if you want it. But like, yeah, I don't have business cards. I don't talk to people about it. If you know what I mean, like it's it's not uh, I don't know it's not necessary. Yeah, I would say that it would almost be counterproductive. Yeah, absolutely. That, that I agree. People don't want to hear about it. They want to find it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think about how I discover music mm-hmm. um, and producers. The way that I've never really discovered uh, producers, other than I mean, in what I do now, I do discover them uh from looking for them but before this the way that i would discover them was the same way i would discover music is i would hear it uh or hear about a band or something and not pay attention and then hear about it again not pay attention hear about it and then finally by like the seventh time i hear about it it's like okay there's a video gonna watch it or something or or it's on you know i come across it and listen i'm like wow this is pretty cool um and having that wow this is pretty cool reaction several times with the same artist then leads me to do more research and then i'll figure out who produced it and then 
you start to see the same person working on records you like, then you know you like that person's work. I feel like that's how most producers are discovered. Yeah, I get a ton of people just because they're like, oh man, I love X record that you did and I saw your name in the credits and I wanted to see what you could, whatever. People people read credits, you know, like they, they pay attention when they're when they're making music, they're paying attention to the records that they like. And I, I, that is a, that's a common email I get is like, oh man, I keep seeing your name pop up on all these records that I love. And like, yeah, I sometimes just people emailing to thank me. They're not even, they're not even maybe even musicians. They're just like, hey, like you've done so many records that I love. Like, thank you for making them sound like real music or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, it's fucking cool. But yeah, more and more people are paying attention to that stuff. Yeah, that's how producers get discovered, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. So anyways, I feel like this is a good place to put this one to bed. Sure. I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Hairball Audio. For nearly a decade, Hairball Audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high-quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form. Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio. Do it yourself without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sure. Legendary microphones, cutting edge wireless systems, premium earphones and headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to sure.com. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.